It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Welcome to FT Analysis. I'm Esther Bintliff, a digital editor at the Financial Times. This week, the FT published a groundbreaking series of articles by Peter Spiegel, our Brussels bureau chief, in which he looks back at the worst days of the Eurozone crisis and reveals just how close Europe's single currency came to collapse. We talked to Peter about what it was like reporting on the Eurozone crisis at its peak in 2011 and 2012, and what he discovered when he revisited some of the turning points this year. Peter, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So you became the FD's Brussels bureau chief in 2010. Can we start by talking a bit about what it was like to report on the Eurozone as the crisis began to take hold? In the first piece in the series, you describe the seemingly endless series of all-night emergency summits that took place. And I was wondering what it was like to be a journalist covering those summits. Well, it was a bit of baptism by fire, to be honest with you. I arrived here in Brussels, uh, I always like to joke, uh, between the first Greek bailout and the first Irish bailout, so sort of summer 2010. And what people forget is that in the, the first months, it was actually relatively quiet. Uh, after the first Greek bailout, uh, George Papandreou, the prime minister, was actually implementing the program with some success. And there really was a calm had returned to to Brussels. As a journalist, I got slightly nervous that the story had had ended. Um, but what gradually happened is, particularly led by Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who was clearly trying to wrestle with what the eurozone should look like. There was a a progressive move to publicly declare that no longer should public money be used to rescue banks, to rescue sovereigns. And they began to say that sometime in the future, we're going to have what's called haircuts, which is, you know, sort of losses forced on holders of both government bonds and bank bonds. And as soon as those declarations became more public, most famously at a summit between Chancellor and Nicolas Sarkozy in in, uh, Deauville, France in late 2010, the markets began to panic again. They started to say, well, look, they promised me during the Greek bailout that they were going to pay me back 100%. If now they're saying they're going to force losses on me, uh, I'm getting out of here. And you started to see it gradually, the panic begin to set in. First, first Ireland fell off the cliff, then Portugal fell off the cliff. And then as these, these demands for more and more pain on private investors and, and private shareholders started to grow in, in 20, 2011, and this, this concept of a Greek PSI or a big Greek haircut became closer to reality, you saw panic set in on, on Italian and Greek bondholders as well. So it was, it was a progressive thing that sort of almost like you know, the, the proverbial lobster in the, in the boiling pot where it kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And those of us who were sitting in the middle of it didn't realize we were getting cooked, but we literally were up nights uh, on end for weeks on end. Uh, didn't see my wife and kids for a while there uh, at the, the height of the crisis. And we all knew how exhausted we were as reporters. And we could only imagine uh, these leaders who were having to make decisions that literally were 
you know, had the, the weight of the entire global economy uh, in their hands at these decisions, you know, how they could be making these things uh, coherently at four o'clock in the morning, you know, on, on a Thursday uh, morning. So it was very touch and go for a while. And you really felt that what you were writing and what those leaders were deciding in those early morning hours were, were you know, like I said, had the fate of the, the global economy uh, in the balance. Things eventually obviously did calm down again and the turbulence in the markets faded thanks to the political decisions that you that you write about in your in your series. When did you first start thinking about writing this series of articles and how hard was it to get people to talk about that time and to relive it? To be perfectly frank, the first time we actually thought about this, uh, I approached Lionel Barber, the editor of the FT, uh, was well, late 2012, early 2013, so literally a year and a half ago. Uh, we sat down, and this was after uh, Mario Draghi declared he would do whatever it takes, and after, equally importantly, Angela Merkel flew to Athens uh, to sort of symbolically declare that she too was going to do whatever it takes to hold the year together. And, and Lionel and I sit down, and Lionel said, look, you know, this, this crisis now seems to be past us. Let's tell the story of how this happened. And uh, I actually started making some of the calls and interviews that far back. Uh, I must say one of the people I, I interviewed uh, very early, and one of the first interviews I, I, I conducted, actually he passed away in the interim of the year and a half uh, that I've been reporting this. But what happened was two things. One, Cyprus, if you remember, that, that in early 2013, uh, the Cypriot bailout happened. And it seemed for a while that the year crisis was actually not over, that because of some of the ham-handed ways in which the, the leaders handled the Cypriot bailout, that the markets were going to spin back out into panic. So until sort of mid the you know, middle of last year, we weren't 100% sure that the year had been saved, and we, so we put the thing on hold for a while. But it was about after summer of last year where Lionel and I sat down again and said, look, right, let's, let's try this again, where the serious reporting went in. And, and I traveled, you know, everywhere. Multiple trips to Athens, multiple trips to Berlin, multiple trips to Paris. Uh, obviously, talked to a lot of people here in Brussels, flew to Washington, uh, went to New York, went to Rome. Lionel, to his great credit, gave me a lot of uh, resources and a lot of time to pull this together. And in terms of people to talk to, I mean, the other thing that's been relatively a little fun about this is, is a lot of the people are not in office anymore. <laughs> um, remember that, that it really is only Angela Merkel uh, who has seen uh, this entire crisis through uh, as, a, as a major European leader from start to end. You know, Nicolas Sarkozy has, has lost office. The Berlusconi people are out of office. The Monti people are out of office. Certainly in Greece, you've had now, you know, consecutive governments between the, the Papandreou government, the Papadimos government. So getting people who are out of office to speak and you know, in, in some of these countries, has not been all that difficult. But, but certainly, the people who are still in office, uh, if, if only to you know uh, find time in their schedules, that was a bit harder. The interesting thing is, I think you know, despite the fact that it was a, a brutal three years, I think a lot of these people are very proud of the work they did and and want that story told because at the end of the day, they did prevent a global conflagration from happening. So, so I think people, a lot of people, just wanted to tell their stories, which was was, was quite heartening as a reporter. So, Peter, we've had some great feedback on the series from readers around the world, and we decided to ask FT readers to submit any questions they might have, and then we've chosen a few to put to you. The first one is from Athens. My name is Kostas Davarakis. I'm from Greece. In your article, you say, never again would Greece threaten the existence of the euro. Can we be sure of this? Do you think the euro is now insulated from the beleaguered southern economies of the eurozone? Well, the one thing I learned in this crisis is to never say never. Um, you know, it, it is really, I, I almost describe it as a Pavlovian response. You know, we become so accustomed to thinking the Eurozone crisis was over 
only to find that a month or a week or even a day later, the markets have blown up again repeatedly over the course of those three years. Uh, that I would never, I would almost uh, have a mental block on, on declaring things over. But let's, let's be honest here. What was achieved was a system that now can handle these crises is much better. There is a rescue fund. There is an ECB firewall. There are things that could prevent this from happening again. But look, let's remember, Greece is still at you know, record high debt levels. It's unemployment. I mean, I think people forget it's still at 25, 26%. Um, they've gone through five years, almost six years of economic recessions. If you were to stack up the numbers that Greece in terms of economic shrinkage and in terms of unemployment, and put them against the United States in the 1930s or in the, the Depression, the Greek numbers are worse. Uh, so, you know, there is still a risk of political instability in Greece. Certainly in, in Italy, we saw a shakeup there relatively recently. So, you know, the question I think on a lot of people's minds here in Brussels in particular has, is, have we shifted from an acute phase of the crisis to a more chronic phase of the crisis in which we're going to have a long-term effort to try to reduce debt, to try to reduce deficits in a currency union would prevent you from sort of devaluing and, and do that easily. Does that mean, you know, years and years of unemployment and low growth? So I, I wouldn't say that the Eurozone crisis is over. I think there's going to be a lot of hard work ahead. But I think the existential crisis is, is, is over because what, what was really driving the market panic was this belief that if I owned a Eurozone bond, that I was not going to be paid back. And remember, bond investors are conservative investors. These are not, you know, I know the, the image of sort of these speculators in, in London and New York betting against the, the Euros, the sort of the popular imagination. But normally, you know, people who invest in, in bonds are pension funds and, you know, sort of this prototypical little old lady. They want to make sure they get the return. And what Draghi's whatever it takes message sent was that the, the bottomless pockets of the ECB now stood behind those sovereign bonds. So I don't think you're likely to see the conflagration like we had in those, uh, those years I wrote about. The next question from our reader is related a bit to what you were just saying about Greece in particular. This is a question from the U.S. My name is Bill Letson. I'm calling from Ohio in the United States. I thought the series was wonderful, and my question for Peter is, now that Greece has achieved a primary surplus, what needs to be done politically to bring their debt load to a truly manageable point? Well, there's obviously several ways that debt can become manageable. I mean, remember, debt is judged by, it's called debt to GDP or debt to economic output. So you've got to bring your debt down, but you also have to increase the denominator, which should be able to grow. Um, and that, to be honest with you, has been the biggest problem in Greece. You know, if Greece were to be able to increase its economic growth, this debt, particularly since it has a budget surplus, if you don't count payments uh, on interest on its debt, uh, suddenly... You, the, the dynamics start going in the other direction. The problem is, and, and everyone here in Brussels realizes that, is that at 177% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, even stronger economic growth is not going to bring back down to levels that are manageable for some time. So I think the next phase in this, in this debate here in Brussels is going to be, do we need to provide Greece more debt relief? Um, I can tell you that the IMF in particular has been pushing for significant more debt relief. But you have to remember that because of the bailouts, almost all Greek debt is now held by Eurozone governments and by the ECB. So if you're going to sort of do a haircut, if you're going to force losses on, on bondholders to reduce Greece's debt, 
it's going to be Germany and the Netherlands and Finland uh, that are going to have losses. It's no longer you know bankers and, and bondholders. So that's going to be very politically difficult. Uh, so that's the debate I think we're going to see going forward as we decide whether Greece needs a third bailout because there still is some uh, financing needed for, for, for next year and, and for for 2016. So yes, this is still a problem. You know, Greece in and of itself, by being able to sort of to throw off enough cash to start paying down its own debt, that's just not going to be enough to bring it debt down further. So the debate here is going to be what kind of debt relief can we can we bring for Greece? Is it just going to be extending payments on its debt even further, 30, 40, 50 years, and, and putting down that interest rate even further to almost at cost? I mean, someone said to me here in Brussels, remember, Britain paid its last lend-lease payment to the United States from World War II under Tony Blair. Uh, it was 50 years. So you can, you can start you know, putting these, these bond payments back you know, for, for decades. That becomes much easier to handle for the Greek authorities. And, and even though the debt doesn't come down, its ability to pay becomes much easier. We've got a question now from the Netherlands. This one is from Jan Witting in Amsterdam. Do you believe that the European political clan is now better prepared to handle the inevitable crisis that will come in the future? I think so. I mean, look, I mean, the, the people who went through this, you know, never want to do this again. And they've worked very hard in creating this banking union and creating a, a new mechanisms, uh, rescue mechanisms. I mean, there were literally were parts of the European monetary and, and, and economic union that had, were not complete. And, and everyone seemed to know this. Uh, you know, there have been academic treatises written for decades about the things that had not been done to finalize a, a proper monetary union. And they've gone significantly further now uh, in the last three years. The problem is they haven't completed it. And, you know, when you talk to you know, some of the conversations I've had, particularly people who are most involved in the crisis over the reporting of this series, is, of course, we talk about the past, but we also talk about the present. And there's a growing concern that the fact that markets now are so calm, you know, Italian borrowing costs, for instance, are now at their lowest levels ever uh, since the euro was created. There is no desire to move any further. So to complete this this repair, you know, because there is no, you know, the things that everyone says a a a monetary union really needs, which is a federal budget, um, you know, properly harmonized economic policies and budgets, and 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 even things like you know uh, eurozone bonds that are backed by all 18 members, things that you normally associate with a properly functioning currency union have not been done, and there just is no appetite right now to go back and try to do those kinds of repairs because things are easy. Things are fine now. And, you know, the politicians who went through this don't want to revisit this stuff. So I just want an anecdote before I finish, wrap up answering this question is that the last summit here in Brussels before the European elections, which come next week, um, was in March. And Angela Merkel pushed very hard to try to go to the next step, which was this, this concept that every Eurozone country has to sign basically contracts is what they call them. So reform contracts. So you get this harmonization of the economies. Uh, in the eurozone to make them more of a, a common market and a, and a common uh, currency union. We were told that basically no other leader wanted to do that, and the reason is they had done enough. There was reform fatigue. You know, it's not just Greece and and Portugal who are going through reform fatigue. It is a lot of these EU leaders in in some of the other countries that just don't want to have to address this anymore. So yes, I think we've gone a long way to creating uh, tools that could prevent this from happening again, but it, it's not done, and every official who's directly involved in the crisis funding will admit that. We've got one last question from a reader. This one is from Jihad Murakada in Lebanon. He asked, 
How could these leaders envisage Grexit without considering that there might be consequences for Europe and the world economy that nobody could seriously predict? As a former international banker, I know for a fact that while numbers can be predicted, human behaviour is unpredictable. Well, I think that is exactly the debate that happened. And particularly in Germany, as I, as I described in, in part two of the series, um, there were certainly those in Germany who felt this was quantifiable. And one of the criticisms you've heard uh, from, you know, I heard from, from Paris, uh, even from Washington, from, from some of the others in this debate, was they felt the German debate was academic. That they would, you know, sort of someone said to me, you, you, they pull up their spreadsheets and you look at, okay, Greek debt, if you wrote it off uh, on bank A, B, and C, you could quantify it. You know, the one interesting thing about the, about the French and the Americans in particular, who sort of were very close uh, in, in their view of the crisis, as I described in many of the pieces, is that both the French finance ministry and the American Treasury Department, I know this is criticized frequently, but both of them have what they call in the United States a revolving door. So a lot of these guys come in and out from you know, banks and, and, and markets into their finance ministries. They have experience with markets and the psychology of markets. And one of the things you hear from these other capitals is there is no tradition of that in Germany. That a lot of the people who were working on this were, were lawyers or academic economists. Now, again, that's potentially a good thing. But one of the things that many people talked about was this, this idea that the United States and France, and to a certain extent Britain, which didn't play a central role here, have this better feel for the markets than, than Berlin does. Uh, and the Germans are aware of this criticism. They don't necessarily agree with it. But I think that does weigh on what the, what the questioner is getting at. You know, the psychology of markets that, that is not obvious to those who don't participate in it. And it was something that the Americans and the French were pushing very hard on, that, that saying, look, although you can look at a spreadsheet and say, these are write downs that, that don't look that bad, it does not take into account the psychological effect that you're having on investors outside of Greece, uh, and not just bondholders in Spain or Italy. But think about if you were a, a guy who had a bank account in a Spanish bank, and you woke up the next day, and you saw every Greek euro turned into drachma. Well, if I'm a Spanish account holder, what do I do? I start pulling my money out of Spanish banks and putting them into Deutsche Bank or, or somewhere else. And that, a lot of people were concerned, would have led to the collapse of the entire peripheral banking system. And that, that was something they couldn't you – know, that would have blown up the euro overnight. So again, it's not just markets. It's, it's your average punter with a bank account. But there were many people who believed that you could predict with some certainty what would happen. And that was pretty much the central fight over the course of 2012 on this. Peter, that's all we've got time for today, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to answer a few of the many excellent reader questions we received. Happy to do it. If you haven't read Peter's series yet, go to ft.com forward slash EZ, that's the letters E and Z, where you can also watch Peter's video explainer of how the euro was saved. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the FT Analysis podcast in the iTunes store. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.